This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. As U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara gained a reputation for going after corruption on Wall Street and investigating public officials on all sides of the political aisle. Later, after the election of Donald Trump, he was fired for refusing to quit along with all other Obama-appointed prosecutors. He's now the host of the Stay Tuned with Preet podcast, and he's the author of a book that critiques not only our criminal justice system, but also our current political discourse. Barrar will be in town on November 12th at the Royal Oak Music Theater live in conversation with former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid and Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. But ahead of that, he joins us now to talk about his work, his book, and his view on how we are doing with political discourse in 2019 in this country. Preet Barrara, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, sir. Yeah. So let's start with uh, your time as U.S. prosecutor in New York Southern District. You had an opportunity there to really crack down on corruption on Wall Street, and you definitely concentrated a lot of your efforts on that. Talk about why that was a focus of your work there. Uh, well, you know, there are lots of different things that different U.S. attorneys' offices do and are known for. Uh, and it's always been the case of the Southern District of New York that contains Manhattan Island uh, is a focus of both Wall Street, because that's where it is, and also terrorism, because that's where a lot of terrorists have placed a, you know, a target, including the World Center, uh, the World Trade Center, and uh, you know the, the kind of bad behavior and misconduct that I think really gets people's goat is uh, corruption, whether it's on Wall Street or corruption uh, in state capitals, like we had in Albany, and so it's an important focus because I think if you don't take care of how the the markets are, you'll take care to make sure that they're fair and they're balanced and they're not rigged, I think people lose faith not only in the justice system, but also in you know, the economic system of the country. Mm. And uh, talk about the success that you had there in that Southern District for New York, which is a very high-profile role in this country. I mean, there are lots of U.S. attorneys, of course, uh, across the country. That particular role, I think, gets elevated to a different level because of all of the things that kind of converge there in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think it's also uh, the case that there's a tradition there of, of independence and of aggressiveness and thinking broadly about what the jurisdiction is. And so you know, we brought cases of international scope. We brought cybercrime cases against foreign nationals, uh, you know, terrorists who were living abroad who were trying to do harm to people in the United States. Uh, we, you know, of some interest to folks in your <clears throat> listening area, we also brought uh, various cases against our car manufacturers, including uh, Toyota and GM, which I consider to be a kind of corporate fraud also, because they weren't straight up about safety concerns with respect to those vehicles. Mm. Um, and let's talk about the end of your tenure as the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. It's pretty standard for U.S. attorneys to resign and allow a new president to appoint someone who might be, I guess, more sympathetic to their political instincts. Uh, you didn't want to do that, and and ended up in a, a clash with the President of the United States. <laughs> well, my, my situation was slightly more complicated. <laughs> You're right. absolutely correct that uh, it is standard operating procedure for the remaining U.S. attorneys to, over the course of time, with an appropriate transition period, uh, so that there's consistency uh, with respect to cases and investigations that are ongoing, 
that they leave when a new president comes in, particularly one of the opposing party, which is what I fully expected was going to happen, what I fully expected to do when Donald Trump won the presidency in November of 2016. The difference is that just eight days after the election in 2016, Donald Trump, uh, on his own as president-elect, uh, reached out to me through Senator Schumer, for whom I had once worked, to ask me to stay for another term, uh, and was so adamant about that that he asked me to meet him, uh, along with Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon, uh, at Trump Tower, the 26th floor of Trump Tower. Back in November of 2016, we had a, a nice meeting, and he asked me very specifically to stay on, uh, because he thought the work of the Southern District was good and important. Uh, so I, I said yes, and I agreed to stay on. And then oddly, as I've recounted in the podcast and other places, the president would call me from time to time, both when he was president-elect and then also uh, one time in March of 2017. He placed a phone call directly to me, didn't go through the Justice Department, didn't include Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I had no idea what he was calling about. Maybe it would be innocuous, maybe it wouldn't. But as we now know, the president makes certain kinds of phone calls, whether it's to law enforcement officials or the president of Ukraine, maybe are not appropriate. So uh, not even knowing about all this later evidence that we are now in possession of, I thought it, the better part of discretion not to have a conversation with the sitting president when I had jurisdiction over lots of different things, including his businesses, foundation, and everything else, where there were some swirling requests for investigation into those things. And so without knowing what the conversation was going to be about, I refused to return the call. Hmm. Uh, and 20 hours later, I was asked to resign along with all the other Obama U.S. attorneys as well. I can't say that the, 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 my failure to return the call is directly connected to the request for my resignation, but I find it hard to believe they're not connected in some way. Uh, and then I refused to resign because it wasn't clear that it applied to me, given that I had that, I'd had this other meeting with the president. Uh, and then I realized, you know what, if, if the president sat me down, shook my hand and asked me to stay, then I want to be clear that he's the one who's asking me to leave, and it's not some bureaucratic maneuver. And as soon as I found out that the president himself, which took about a day, a day and a half, that the president wanted me gone, I left. And and a part of what makes that story so compelling is the extraordinary nature of all of the things that the president of the United States is doing in those uh, instances, in the, in, in the things that he did to interact with you. First, first, not divesting the way that other presidents have from the businesses that he had. Uh, second, being the subject of an inquiry by a U.S. attorney, not only when he was running for president, but then also as he's president-elect and then as president. I mean, what strikes me about it is that it's it's really hard these days, I think, to apply the traditional filters that we do to decision making and and the things that happen around us because of the extraordinary behavior of this president. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. So, you know, in modern American democracy, you take for granted that various political actors uh, and government actors are going to behave in a particular way. They're going to observe certain norms. The problem is uh, that people are now discovering that a lot of those things that we want uh, in terms of behavior from our president and other people, they're not codified into law, not in a statute. You know, that the, the president behaved well with respect to national security secrets. He's not revealed classified information um, in a haphazard way. Um, he's not engaged in conflicts of interest, uh, but he's not above the law. <clears throat> he doesn't break the law. 
and all those things we're now, <clears throat> excuse me, discovering that don't necessarily apply to the president. The president can't have a security clearance revoked because, you know, we need the president of the United States to be in possession of information uh, of the most sensitive nature to protect the homeland. The president can get away with, you know, having conflicts of interest. You know, every once in a while, there is something ability to curb the president's behavior when there's bipartisan opposition. So in normal times, you would not expect a president who did not divest himself of various properties and interests around the world to not only suggest but actually announce that the next G7 was going to take place at his Trump Doral resort in Florida, thinking that was totally fine. That's a, that's a complete transgression of what you would think is a common-sense norm, that you don't direct the contract to yourself uh, openly like that. <clears throat> and he did. And there was so much backlash that he rescinded that decision. So, so there are lots and lots of ways in which the president doesn't, doesn't do the right thing. Uh, here's another example. Pardons. The Constitution allows the President of the United States to issue pardons almost without restriction. There's almost no regulation on it, because it has always been assumed that those pardons would be issued appropriately. Now, there have been examples uh, by, <clears throat> by past presidents who also have maybe violated um, you know, the public trust with respect to pardons, notably Bill Clinton when he pardoned a fugitive Mark Rich, who had been indicted by my office. But there is a process by which presidents have traditionally decided to grant the pardon or not grant the pardon. It's not required in the Constitution, but there's a whole office in the Justice Department called the Office of the Pardon Attorney, who you know, writes a memorandum and reviews the facts and makes a recommendation. But the president can reject or adopt, but there's a process so that people can have the sense that those decisions, even though you know, fully empowered by the Constitution to be made based on any reason at all, that they're based on fairness and equitable considerations. Mm. And this president has over and over again exercise his pardon power in a way that has had no process attached to it and no consultation with the business department whatsoever. And there is a concern that he might be done again in the future. And as the Mueller report pointed out, remember the Mueller report? As the Mueller report pointed out, uh, there were various times when he looked like he was dangling pardons to people who were in a position to say negative things about him. So I, I, we could spend you know, several hours discussing all the norms that the president tramples and the ways in which you can hold him in check uh, we have that much time today. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk just a little about how that struck you in that role. So you're the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and all of a sudden there's a president who doesn't respect the traditions or the norms of his office. He's doing things that uh, that, that, that challenge all of us to think differently about how to respond did it ever occur to you that that maybe because he's the president and and in charge really of the Justice Department that you ought not be doing the things that you were doing? Or did you see it in the opposite way that this was a challenge to constitutional norms and it was your job to stand up to, to the president? Uh, yeah, so I, I didn't have a, a lot of direct intersection with the president other than this phone call that I've described. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and my overlap with him as president only lasted a few weeks. He was sworn in in January and I was out by the middle of March. Um, and so, you know, I was observing this mostly as a citizen, but the most the specific norm that affects me directly is the one I've already described. And that is the norm that, that sets forth that politics and law enforcement are to be completely separate. 
and you're not supposed to. I mean, they're, they're literally the protocols that have been uh, you know put on on paper out of the Justice Department at various junctures, including during the Bush administration and the Obama administration, that sets forth the policy of not allowing direct communication with respect to law enforcement matters between people in the White House and people in the Justice Department. It has to be done according to you know to guidelines to make sure that there's no unnecessary and undue influence on, a, on, a, on a, the law enforcement investigation or prosecution by someone in political office. And so that's why you know, I, I thought there were alarm bells ringing and two times the president-elect called me during the transition and then called me when he was actually seeing president because you know, it, it seems now in retrospect more clear given you know, his behavior with respect to Jeff Sessions and Jim Comey, who I, I credit when he says when he's asked for you know an oath of loyalty for the president of the United States, I think what Donald Trump does and what he was doing and intended to do with me was cultivate a person who was in a position to either help him if he was in jeopardy uh, in law enforcement terms or to hurt an adversary. And I have no doubt that if I had taken a call and played along uh, and and continued to have an on-the-side relationship with a man who I'd never met before November of 2016, but at some point. As you see with Ukraine, as you see with Jim Comey, as you see with Jeff Sessions, as you see with so many others, there would have been an untoward request of some sort. And that's the one that I hold most dear given the job that I used to have. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Preet Barrera about his new book and the time that he served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. We'll also give away some tickets to his appearance here in the state of Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. It's, uh, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Preet Bharara. He is a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He served from 2009 to 2017. He is host of the Stay Tuned with Preet podcast, and he's going to be in town live in conversation with former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid and Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel on November 12th at the Royal Oak Music Theater. Uh, we are also giving away four pairs of tickets to that appearance on the show right now. The first four callers will receive a pair of the tickets. So if you have a question for Preet, I uh, want to talk about uh, I want to talk about the state of uh, political discourse today, which is a theme in, in his book and some of the things that he talks about. Uh, I want to talk about Donald Trump and the extra presidential things that he's doing, uh, the things that, that seem to strain our conventional understanding of what the president ought to be doing and not doing, uh, something else that Preet has some experience with, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today 
and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get to calls, Preet, I want to read a, a, a short excerpt from your book and have you talk about uh, how you came to this, this kind of idea. One of the things I love about the book is that you take your experience as a lawyer and a prosecutor and, and kind of try to globalize it to think through some of the challenges that we have in other areas than the law today. Uh, you say, I don't know how to inspire ordinary smart people to engineer a faster microprocessor, build a bigger rocket, or colonize another planet. But what I can do is ask them to question the way they do things, to apply old tools in novel ways, to brainstorm, to think anew. True inventors are special, I suppose, but the rest of us can be inventive too. Everyone can, from time to time, turn orthodoxy on its head. Talk about what you're asking us to do there. Yeah, so th- thanks for reading that particular passage. Um, you know, one of the premises of the book is that for any institution to grow, whether it's a university uh, or a bank or a U.S. attorney's office or a media uh, outlet, there needs to be innovation. You can't just do things the same way that you've done them before. And law enforcement in particular, and lawyers also in particular, are very conservative people. And, you know, they don't engage in radical change. And a lot of people go through their jobs just sort of trying to figure out how the last person did it. And they do it the same way over and over and over again. But the world changes, and threats change. And if you're a business, you know, uh, competition changes. Uh, and needs change, and so you have to adapt to that. And the problem for most people, as I recited in that, in that passage we read, is they think, well, I'm not an inventor. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to be able to figure out the cure for cancer. And they don't realize that there are small things that you can do to improve the flow of work or to improve communication uh, or to improve um, efficiency you know, in, in any single workplace uh, that can make a dramatic difference if a lot of people are thinking about the same thing at the same time. You know, I'll give you one example from, from my time. It was actually before my time, but I adopted it and continued with it. You know, you, you were remarking earlier about some of the criminal prosecutions we brought on Wall Street. One of those areas was insider trading. And it might seem like an obvious thing that insider trading, as, at its heart, is a crime of communication. You know, someone has inside information, material non-public information, and communicates it to some other person. And sometimes that might be done on a telephone. Uh, and yet, before... The folks in my office in about 2008 and nine decided to take this approach. No one had ever thought, to my knowledge, to use wiretaps uh, to investigate and prosecute insider trading. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, inventing a rocket. It's, it's taking something uh, that has been used in other ways and applying it to the current situation. And that can be true, you know, in, in, in all sorts of environments and all sorts of contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that kind of innovation, as, as you point out, is we think of that as being related to inventors, but uh, but we we do need more people, I guess, to think that way. And and I feel like in some ways more people are. We see examples of that uh, each day. It, it, it is kind of a reflection, I think, of. The, the I guess the rare space that we seem to uh, exist in uh, at, at this point. And that kind of echoes the rare political moment, I guess, that, that we are dealing with. And that's something else that you are really focused on is how different our discourse is and in your view, how ineffective that discourse is. 
Yeah, well, again, you know, it's very commonplace and fashionable to say lawyers are terrible, and many of us are. <laughs> the legal profession earns a lot of jokes, um, you know, for good reason. You know, lawyers argue too much, they litigate too much, they yell too much, they charge too much. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they do all sorts of things that make people crazy. But I make the sort of unorthodox point that there's one way in which lawyers could teach the rest of us a lesson when it comes to public discourse. What's the problem with public discourse, largely? It's, I think, two things. One, uh, people don't communicate with folks who disagree with them. They follow the people that they follow, they watch the television news that they, that they watch, and they don't hear points of view that differ from theirs. So everything is confirmed. They talk to people who agree with them, they watch things that agree with them, and that's it. And then from time to time, when they do engage on social media or somewhere else with, with some person who has a different idea or is on the other side of the aisle, how do they communicate with them? They do it with character assassination and bullying uh, and name-calling and all sorts of things that are not productive either. Now now imagine uh, how that would play in a courtroom. You know, a lawyer for one party on one side who has a completely different view from the other lawyer uh, can't stick his fingers in his ears and chant and not listen to the other argument. <laughs> not doing your job. And then when you do engage in argument to try to persuade neutral jurors to your point of view, you have to do it with, with respect. You have to do it with dignity. You have to do it with facts and evidence and logic, and you can't you know, use irrelevancies. Uh, you can't name-call. Uh, and that's how you get to the truth, and that's how you get to a persuasive result and a fair and just result in a courtroom. And I'm not saying that we should all conduct ourselves as lawyers, but uh, a little bit. We should think about engaging the other side, understanding their points of view, so we hone our own points of view. And also, when we do it, not do it with resort to name-calling and irrelevancies. And I think public discourse would benefit from that. Hmm. I, I wonder if you can talk about impeachment, which is dominating the headlines right now. The Democrats in Washington are proceeding in a process uh, that it looks a little different than what we might expect out of an impeachment. They're, they're conducting an inquiry before they decide whether to proceed with articles of impeachment. Are, are they doing this the right way, given the things that, that you just said about the ways in which we deal with each other in this country? I've heard a lot of people say that this seems exceedingly partisan and that uh, the, the Democrats were waiting the entire time that President Trump has been president for some reason to launch an impeachment inquiry or an impeachment process, and that that taints somehow this process uh, from the beginning and makes it very difficult to place much credibility in it. Uh, do, do you agree with that? And are there things that you feel the Democrats could or should be doing that might make this more acceptable across partisan lines? Well, I, I agree with the, the notion that it is very, very important as impeachment proceeds and as articles get drawn up, if they do get drawn up, for everything to look even-handed and as bipartisan as possible and as fair as possible. Um, because the only way uh, that the public is going to come along is if they have the feeling that even though these people are politicians, they take their obligation seriously um, and they're, they're, they're you know, consistent with the, the sadness of the moment because it's a big deal. And it's only been done, you know, two and a half times, I guess you could say. Um, I don't think that so far the Democrats have fallen down on that. Um, I think that, you know, it is in the interests of the president's allies to attack the process, which is what they've been doing. 
And I, I think those attacks have been a little bit overstated. So there have been attacks on the fact that there has been an impeachment inquiry that, has, that is underway, and there are uh, you know, depositions and inquiries that are going on behind closed doors. I, I, that's a silly contention, I think. I, I think in every prior case, including hearings and investigations that don't involve impeachment, that I myself led when I was a staffer in the U.S. Senate, and that Lindsey Graham is perfectly well aware of, mm-hmm. for efficiency's sake, uh, you go behind closed doors and, you, and staff members usually take lengthy depositions and collect the evidence and look at a lot of witnesses, and then they decide which makes sense to have a public hearing about um, so that the public is not wasting its time and so you don't have the surface-like atmosphere. I mean, investigations you know, need time, and some of that has to happen uh, in an orderly way uh, through the deposition process. I think the Democrats are wise to now finally decide that they're going to uh, hold a vote in the entire House <clears throat> in the entire House on impeachment. I think Nancy Pelosi has called that vote for Thursday. So I think that's good. And as to your point about whether or not they've been lying in wait, the Democrats have been lying in wait to to launch impeachment against the president since the beginning, that's probably so. I mean, any party has people uh, on a spectrum, and at one extreme, probably there are people who felt that way. But, you know, if you remember, Bob Mueller investigated for two years, and there's lots and lots of people who think that there was enough evidence in the Mueller report, particularly Volume 2, mm-hmm. uh, to state a cause for criminal action. And since he can't be prosecuted based on the Department of Justice memorandum, impeachment seemed viable then. And nobody, you know, launched an impeachment investigation based on the Mueller report. In fact, as, as you may recall, uh, a lot of liberals were very critical of Nancy Pelosi for not proceeding with impeachment. It was only when the Ukraine thing erupted, which I think was the straw that broke the camel's back, that even moderate folks in the Republican Party and even, you know, the very cautious Nancy Pelosi with respect to this issue decided enough is enough. Because remember, the timing of this. It's July 24th of 2019 when Bob Mueller testifies in front of the House, and, you know, it doesn't go great. And people thought impeachment was a dead letter. And the very next day, July 25th, the very next day, the President of the United States, having literally just fallen asleep probably, seeing some of the highlight reel of Bob Mueller's testimony, that's when he calls the President of Ukraine uh, to, to pressure him to launch an investigation into his political rival, Joe Biden. So I think that is the thing that put people over the edge. Hmm. You know, one of the things that also strikes me about this particular inquiry is its connection to history. If you think about the things that the founders themselves were concerned with when they were outlining uh, the Constitution itself and the arguments for the Constitution in the Federalist Papers, this was of particular concern, this idea of a president or other member of the executive branch reaching out to foreign powers to interfere in domestic elections. I, I feel like that's gotten lost in some of yeah. the discourse about this, that, that this is not uh, a nickel and dime kind of offense. It's not the same thing as, for instance, committing uh, an actual crime while in office. It, it, it really is about the fundamental nature of national security. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's one of the compelling reasons that the Democrats don't have much choice. Yeah, I, I think that's an incredibly important point. Um, there's some irony here, right? The, the people who are arguing on behalf of the president take every opportunity, as lawyers do in similar circumstances, to say, well, the, the conduct at issue here uh, has never formed the basis of an impeachment before, right? As if, you know, th- that's a good point in their favor. 
Um, it's not a good point in their favor for a couple of reasons. One is there have been so few precedents of impeachment over a fairly long history um, that you wouldn't expect every possible basis for impeachment to have come before the American public before. I mean, on the, on the prior three occasions, Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton, they were all domestic things. And, you know, depending on your point of view, they were more or less serious. So, yeah, there was no precedent for this conduct being the basis of impeachment. Um, but part of the reason for that is we've never had a president who engaged in this kind of egregious conduct. And then the second reason it's not a good argument for them is exactly what you said in the preface to your question. And that is that the founders you know, felt very, very, very strongly that this kind of entanglement with foreign powers and taking benefits from foreign powers could be the death of a young nation. And it's something they took very, very, very seriously. So in some ways, I think it's more powerful um, that there's lots and lots of writing at the founding of the republic on this issue of foreign influence um, than there is precedent in the long history of the country. It may mean that most presidents prior to number 45 you know, abided by that principle, by that norm. And we've been discussing norms a bunch in this conversation. So it makes it, I think, incredibly serious, even though the last three times it didn't involve this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest is Preet Barrera. He served as the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. He is host of the Stay Tuned with Preet podcast, and he's going to be in town live in conversation with former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid and Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel on November 12th at the Royal Oak Music Theater. We are giving away tickets to that appearance. We've already got three winners, Eleanor, Margaret, and Bill are all going to be there on November 12th. If you would like to be as well, give us a call, 313-577-1019. We have one more pair of tickets uh, to give away uh, to that event. Uh, Preet, talk about what you will be doing here in Metro Detroit next month, and what will people be able to expect if they come out to see you talking with Barb McQuaid and Dana Nessel, two legal figures who are very familiar to people here in Southeast Michigan. Yeah, they're 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 giants in the field uh, in this in this great state of Michigan. So Barbara McQuaid and I go back a long way. We were colleagues together. Uh, she was U.S. Attorney uh, in in your uh, area when I was U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, and we worked together from time to time. And I expect, depending on what's going on in the world, that Barbara and I, who sometimes talk on television about these issues as well, will be having a pretty robust conversation about these very things about. Mm-hmm the nature of impeachment, about the nature of the evidence, about the propriety of how the Democrats are going about it, what is the quid pro quo, what isn't, um, how the testimony is going, why it's important, how you can assure a just and fair outcome, uh, what public sentiment is, and all those kinds of things that are sort of percolating in the news. A little bit of the same uh, with Dana Nessel, uh, including some issues um, of civil rights that I think she cares about a lot. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to talk you know, it, Once upon a time, you wouldn't think uh, that people would come out to watch lawyers talking about <laughs> issues. But the success of, of my podcast and and the sort of ubiquitous presence of former federal prosecutors on cable news is a testament to the fact that lots and lots of people want to understand what's going on. They want to understand how the Constitution should be interpreted. They want to understand the nature of just criminal process. We'll talk about criminal justice reform, which I think is very important to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so if folks want to come, it's, they can go to cafe.com slash tour uh, to find another opportunity to buy tickets for that show. Yeah, uh, Quickly, I want to uh, get an idea from you of how you're enjoying doing a podcast. I mean, this is the thing now, right? 20 years ago, everyone had a blog. Now people are turning to podcast as a way to get their, their message out. You're a lawyer. Uh, talk about uh, taking advantage I, of that medium. 
I'm enjoying it very, very much. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of you know an extension of radio, which obviously you know uh, better than anyone. Uh, you know, I, I didn't appreciate how much interest there would be. So my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, is one that you know discusses the issues of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I answer questions from listeners for the first you know ten or fifteen minutes, and then I do interviews with people. Uh, you know, sometimes people who are in politics, former government officials, members of Congress, senators. Uh, this this past week, I interviewed an interesting person, Cameron Douglas, who is the son of Michael Douglas, grandson of Crip Douglas, who was prosecuted for narcotics offenses mm-hmm. by my office when I was in office. And he's written an extraordinary book about his experience uh, in the prosecution process and in prison. And, you know, it was a little bit weird uh, for former defendant and former U.S. attorney on the other side of the uh, diversity sign in the court document to be in conversation. But I think it's it was incredibly illuminating for a lot of people. The next episode of the podcast will feature Ed Norton, Edward Norton, yeah. the actor, yeah. talking about his new movie and talking about power in New York. So I get to meet a different, interesting, fascinating person every week, and so I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, very cool. All right, Preet Barrera, we will see you when you are here in town November 12th at the Royal Oak Music Theater. Thanks for being with us today on Detroit. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, come back tomorrow for a look at lessons from the 20th century and the state of our political disorder with Yale professor and author Timothy Snyder. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.